Please note, this episode contains discussions on the topic of sexual abuse. Listener discretion is advised. I think there's no question that McCarrick cultivated um, a public persona which was exactly what people wanted. He was the very modern version of a cardinal that people could want. He was gregarious. He was extremely um, personable. He could work a room incredibly well. He was a magnetic personality. He also appeared to be utterly uninterested in himself. There seems to have been an ability with him to partition the things he did that were morally wrong with the things that weren't, and that he could you know, compartmentalize his life very, very well that way. There were a number of accounts that I found fascinating where uh, he would basically be in the process of sexually assaulting a seminarian or a young priest, and at the same time telling them uh, either during or immediately after, you know, you really have to pray for your Uncle Ted. You know, uh, you know, he's really struggling. Interesting that he would always refer to himself in the third person, um, but at the same time, you know, sort of be admitting to his victims that he was troubled by his own actions. And I think this is something that, you know, a way of externalizing what he was doing and the part of him that was doing it, uh, I think allowed him to present a more authentic face, which was conversely even more duplicitous to the rest of the world. You're listening to Crisis, Clergy Abuse in the Catholic Church. I'm Carnal Lozoya. On November 10th of this year, the Vatican released a 461-page report on the rise and fall of former Cardinal Theodore McCarrick. It was an unprecedented show of transparency by the Vatican. Who knew what and when? But was it enough? For the final episode in this series, I sat down with Ed Condon, a canon lawyer and journalist at the Catholic News Agency, and Stephen White, executive director of the Catholic Project and one of the creators of this podcast, to discuss the report. Okay, thank you, Ed Condon and uh, Stephen White, for joining us today on this discussion of the McCarrick Report. Um, before we start, why don't you guys introduce yourselves? Uh, Ed, why don't you start? Sure. Um, I am the Washington Bureau Chief for the Catholic News Agency. In addition to that, I am a canon lawyer. I'm still I'm still actually technically practicing. I have a couple of cases still going in the background, and the vast majority of my canonical practice has been on issues of clerical sexual abuse, um, both involving uh, sort of local diocesan clerics, priests, and deacons, but also including at the level of bishops. And a lot of the caseloads that I have worked on have involved cases in Rome, cases at the level of an apostolic tribunal at the CDF, um, also other disciplinary measures in different Vatican dicasteries. So that has been um, a lot of the way in which I've learned the hard way about the ugly side of some of the issues that are in this report. Stephen White. I'm Stephen White. I'm the executive director of the Catholic Project at the Catholic University of America. Um, our work there, including producing this podcast, is to uh, sort of organize the university's efforts uh, to marshal them in response to the abuse crisis. Um, so I've been at that for the last two years, and uh, we're still at it. Well, um, in the last two years, the Vatican's been working on the McCarrick Report. So this is a report that has been in, anticipated for about two years. And I don't know about you guys, but for the last year, I've been hearing reports and rumors that the report's coming out in a week They've had us on um, pins and needles for the last year promising this report, and it finally um, came on November 10th, and it is called Report on the Holy See's Institutional Knowledge and Decision-Making Related to Former Cardinal Theodore Edgar McCarrick, 1930-2017. to 2017. Uh, Before we start, I let's, talk, let's just talk about the report itself. Um, who, who wrote the report? What was the process? What, what, where did it come from? Ed, why don't you just give us a, a short introduction? Sure. Well, the report was primarily compiled by the Secretariat of State in Rome. Um, I think the final signature on this is, at least on the introduction, is Cardinal Paralines, the Secretary of State. And the report was begun uh, or inaugurated or authorized by Pope Francis that this was a, a specific initiative of his. Um, certainly lots of different carrial departments played a role in this, most primarily the Secretary of State, which was quarterbacking it, if you like, but also the Congregation for Bishops, where quite a lot of the paperwork on Theodore McCarrick lived. 
Also, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, which was charged with handling McCarrick's penal canonical process, um, wasn't a trial from everything we know. It was an administrative penal process, uh, which has its own questions that it raises, but that's that's how they went with it. Uh, but also the diocese that McCarrick was in and led. We know that the Diocese of Metuchen, the Archdiocese of Newark, and the Archdiocese of Washington sent uh, reams of paper. I, you know, I know of one person who told me that the Archdiocese of Washington had an entire room full of files that were sent to Rome as part of this investigation. So you had really these enormous institutions that were all feeding in to creating this report. And, you know, the report itself is 400 some pages. Uh, and the footnotes are, are many, um, but most of them point to an even larger archive that this report is, if you like, a functional introduction to, except it's not introducing us to those archives because they're sealed. But if you like, it's a summary presentation of that. It, in as the way that I've heard it been described is it really is just a summary of everything they have on McCarrick. And it just seems to be almost written as a report, not as what some were expecting more of an investigation. Stephen, can you talk to us a little bit about what's in the report and what's what it what's not in it and yeah and so where'd they get the information and a report that's been this long anticipated has a lot of expectations for it and I think managing those expectations is important um, uh, on the one hand there is a tremendous amount of information uh, in this report that is the sort of information you normally would never ever 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 uh, have disclosed to you um, if you, you it's not every day you get um, extensive records of correspondence official correspondence between you know, American bishops and uh, members of the Roman Curia. Um, much of the con uh, correspondence in releasing this report is in, was written to be and intended to be confidential. Um, so it's not it's not nothing that the Vatican put together this report and released it, and there's a lot of things in here that you normally would never be privy to. And the, the Vatican has set quite a precedent in releasing this amount of information. At the same time, um, there are two primary sources, or two, two primary kinds of sources for this report. One is, um, as Ed already said, you know, archives at the Vatican and elsewhere, and the other is, is interviews. Um, and, and both of those sources have, have limitations. What I mean by that is um, uh, the people who are interviewed for this, and there's a broad range of people from, from you know, high-ranking prelates down to you know, lay people who, who remain anonymous in the, the report, a lot of the interviews are about events that are 20, 30, or 40 years old. And so you're you're relying on the candor and the memory and the recollection of the people being interviewed about events that happened a long time ago. And that has limitations to it. You also have the fact that there are a lot of people who couldn't be interviewed because a lot of the important players in this story uh, have been dead for a long time. Um, so there are limits to what interviews can reveal. And there are also limits to what archives are going to reveal. Archives will reveal the kinds of things people put in official archives. There's all kinds of informal, uh, sort of presumably backroom conversations that happen that don't get written down, don't get filed away, uh, don't get put in reports to your superiors in Rome. Um, and so if the report excludes that kind of information, it's not necessarily a shortcoming of the report. It's just that's not in the archives. And so it's not going to show up in a scan of the archives. Uh, so keeping that in mind can help um, – sort of balance the, the expectation. Again, on the one hand, this is really an unprecedented information dump um, and report from, from the Vatican. And at the same time, it's, it's part of the story. And that's not for a lack of candor from Rome. That's, that's just sort of the nature of the kind of report this is, is it's a part of the story. And it seems significant, like we've never done this before, but I think it's also important to understand this isn't part of a criminal investigation or criminal process. These weren't depositions. People um, were interviewed voluntarily. Uh, they didn't share information they didn't want to share. It wasn't, you know, they weren't under any oath or anything. So I think that's important when you go into the report and just have those expectations. Let's move on to what's in the report. Um, you know, the the... the the question is who knew what, when. So what did we find out? Ed? Well, we find out, uh, at least from my perspective, something that a lot of people heard maybe for the first time in 2018, which was that everybody seemed to know 
that the idea that Theodore McCarrick was some kind of sexual predator did not come as a galloping shock to many people in 2018 or would not have come as a shock to them if they were still alive. That in his career as a priest, as an auxiliary bishop, and as a diocesan bishop, um, he had a reputation that the kind of behaviors that we later, you know, became very famous around McCarrick in 2018 about beach houses and treatment of seminarians and things like that, um, this was a well-established pattern of behavior that was known by lots of people and that there were other more serious, if you like, although I, I don't like referring to them as uh, more serious allegations uh, when they refer to, for example, minors, they're, they're a different kind. They're, they're allegations of a different nature uh, that were also present at the time that, you know, we had this uh, one example of uh, a mother who was anonymous throughout the McCarrick report itself, but who seemed to be making regular and repeated petitions um, to ecclesiastical authorities in the United States saying, Theodore McCarrick is a predator. Someone listen to me. <laughs> and having her concerns uh, summarily dismissed over and over again. And thanks for bringing that up because that was one of the weirdest, for me, mother one is how they referred to her. And it was odd because they couldn't find any of her letters anywhere. And she said that she had sent letters to every cardinal archbishop in the United States. What what do we make of that? I, I found that hard to read, um, but at the same time wasn't entirely surprised because we know, at least from the report, that many of these letters from Mother One had been sent anonymously. And, you know, I've I've read more than a few files of issues of clerical sexual abuse in my time. And when you see anonymous accusations, if they are anonymous and they are part of a flood, the temptation is to dismiss them because you can't contact someone who writes you an anonymous letter. You can't follow up. You can't fact check it. There's only so long you can preserve something like that. And then there's also a question of fairness, of justice. You know, in McCarrick's case, it looks like a tragic miscarriage of justice. But you know, in sort of real time, there is a question of, well, how just is it to a person to retain a, ad infinitum an anonymous accusation of the most serious kind of crime for which there is no evidence and the accuser hasn't even attached their name? You know, you wouldn't expect this in, you know, you wouldn't expect, for example, a police to record and retain forever um, a file on a prominent politician making an anonymous accusation of sexual abuse of a minor because you'd say, well, hang on, that's not fair to them. It's not fair to their record that this is on record somewhere for someone to eventually discover if there's no way of looking into it, of investigating it. So while looking back, the case of Mother One and her apparently serial complaints is tragic and heartbreaking. You can also see the beginnings of how these things go awry and how someone like McCarrick can exploit loopholes in the procedural system to get away with things. Yeah, I think that's that's spot on. Two two things I think the Mother One story jumped out at me. One is um, the the first sort of formal complaint or formal warning um, about McCarrick, at least as recorded in the report, comes from a mother who um, was very uncomfortable and alarmed at the familiar way that, that Theodore McCarrick was behaving towards her son. So I think that's one thing. It was a mother who noticed this and flagged it first. But the second thing is, and it's about – the, the anonymous um, allegations, um, the, in one sense, it's very understandable why she would want to be anonymous, um, especially these, she said that she wrote these letters in the 1980s, which is a different world uh, in a lot of ways, uh, especially on these kinds of issues. Um, but you see in her anonymous allegations and in other anonymous allegations, whether they were from her or from some other sources, not entirely clear from the report, uh, McCarrick used that to his advantage because, well, you can't follow up with an anonymous source to check the credibility of their story, McCarrick took the opportunity to feign transparency. Um, and what I mean by that is the reports would come in, brother bishops would say, hey, this, this someone sent this letter about you, I'd want to let you know. And McCarrick would forward them to the FBI and he sent them to uh, the police. Um, and he talked to his priest counsel um, about allegations against him and took the opportunity to give his side of a story. So you. The, well, the anonymous allegation was intended to raise a warning for him. It, in a sense, inoculated him because it gave him a chance to tell his side of the story with no, no, no telling of the other side except for what's in some anonymous note, which could be you know, who knows where that came from. Um, and so you had this pattern very early on of, of McCarrick using allegations against him almost to bolster his own credibility 
with regard to transparency. He said, yeah, you know, there were – I did have seminarians to the to the beach house. There was nothing untoward. I know it, I was made aware that this looked bad. It's not going to ever happen again. But trust me, there was nothing going on. Um, you know, there, there was an allegation against me. I talked to the police about it. I talked to my own priests about it. I've been transparent about this. So I've got nothing to hide. And and like I said, that sort of inoculated him, as you see later on in the report, uh, against allegations. So that the, that um, when an allegation came against him, or when a rumor about him was heard, sometimes it wasn't the first time it had been heard. But having heard it from him himself, sort of made it less believable. Because look, if McCarrick's telling me about this, then when I hear it from someone else, I'm less likely to think, "Oh my gosh, there's something going on." Because he wasn't try, he wasn't yeah. trying to hide it from people who were probably going to find out anyway. He leaned into it, and and he used that to his advantage. He understood the clerical culture. He understood how these kinds of reports were going to be handled, and he used that to his advantage and um, very effectively for a long time. Yeah, I mean, it, it as you see, I think you use inoculation as a great way of expressing it. That you know, in a sense, he's. Um, He's able to dismiss patient zero in his own case. And from there, everything else, like you said, rumors, allegations, anything can come up, even when he's talking to later on JP2, for example, to be able to say, well, you know, I've been facing this my whole career. Yeah, people make anonymous accusations against me and I've done everything I can to combat them. But in the end, there's only so much I can do. And it makes every other subsequent accusation appear linked to back to that one. And if you can make the first one incredible, then all the rest suffer as a result of that. And, and having an established explanation for why these kinds of rumors exist uh, was a huge tool in his sort of toolbox. Yeah, let's talk about John Paul II. That was a huge question for the McCarrick Report. People wanted to know what John Paul II knew. And um, people kind of on both sides of the aisle wanted to to really get to the, to the truth of did John Paul II know about McCarrick or did he not? And it seems like he at first decided not to send him to DC. Stephen, why? What did he know? Well, I think I think back up a, a little bit. If I'm recalling correctly, the the first sign recorded in the report of American bishops talking to Rome about allegations about McCarrick was from the mid '90s. Uh, Pope John Paul II was coming to the United States, and the question was, should he make a stop in Newark? He was going to be in New York anyway. Should he make a stop over in Newark? Um, and there were some concerns raised about whether a papal visit to Newark would be could be the source of, of old stories coming to light. Um, not that the bishops in question thought that they were true, but they didn't want rumors about this sort of thing distracting from a, a papal visit or, or overshadowing a papal visit. And it was decided that it would be fine for the pope to visit, and he did. And and um, and it was fine, like nothing happened. Well, right. Um, although it looks less fine now. Um, by 2000, um, there was the question of whether McCarrick should be uh, promoted and moved to a more uh, prominent see. And most people say that that meant either New York or Washington, D.C. But there was specific discussion of Chicago in the file. No, there was discussion of Chicago in the file. That's correct. Uh, so one of those one of those three. Um, McCarrick really wanted New York. Was that correct? He did. Felt yeah. he was owed it. Yeah. Yeah. And one account, um, in a very bizarre episode in the— in, in the report, he he, someone claims that he says insisted that he was owed New York, um, uh, and so the long story short, consideration comes up for moving McCarrick to Washington. At the time, he's about seventy years old, so it would be a promotion relatively late in his career. Um, uh, Washington is, in one sense, a very um, prominent and prestigious see because it's the capital, but as an archdiocese, it's not particularly big. Um, uh, it has only one suffragan sea, which I believe is U.S. Virgin Islands. Yep. So the question is, should McCarrick be moved to Washington? It's not entirely clear where the suggestion that McCarrick be moved to Washington comes from. Um, it seems that he wasn't at the top of the, the list from the, from the Congregation for Bishops. Um, the political situation in Washington in 2000 could suggest some reason why he might be moved there. Uh, coming out of eight years of the Clinton administration, the Holy See had interest in getting a, a conciliatory, charismatic, politically well-connected archbishop in, in a city that was going to be important. Um, it was important. It was going to continue to be important. The The big sticking point with that move was a letter that had been written by Cardinal Connor from New York shortly before he died, basically reluctantly 
um, arguing against the promotion of McCarrick. Because he was revealing kind of all the things that he had discovered. Right, right. So there, uh, uh, in addition to the rumors about uh, Beach House, which when we say everyone knew about the Beach House, the rumors about the Beach House were almost entirely rumors about sharing a bed at a beach house, which in the report, sharing a bed is never a euphemism for something else. It literally means sleeping in the same bed. Um, and McCarrick seemed to lean on that too. Yes. He did. And yeah. Well, I mean, you say it was never anything other than that. It, it was stuff other than that, but it was a series of connected behaviors, which, and I think this is one of the remarkable things of the portrait of McCarrick as a sexual abuser that the report paints is there are levels of abuse that he doesn't appear to commit and is not accused of having committed, that it's all very suggestive and inappropriate and sexualized contact uh, contact and abuse. But very rarely um, is he accused of the sort of, you know, level of sexual abuse of, you know, for example, rape that is not uncommon in other kinds of sexual abuse cases involving clerics. And I think this is another thing that points to the particular pathology of Theodore McCarrick that allowed him to survive and carry on for so long, is there does seem to be a very clear line in his mind um, between what he would and wouldn't do. Now, In, in the report, at least. At in least the in the report. report, yeah. But even talking to people who, you know, are, are McCarrick's, you know, own uh, – victims or alleged victims that you know there there's a there's a great clear bright line between the sort of weird behaviors that he would get up to all the time um, and the things that he doesn't seem to have been accused of doing very much and and you I say think, very much well I mean there's always the, basically I don't want to rule out or accidentally negative okay. <laughs> someone who's come yeah. forward and perhaps alleged something else but is not part of an overall pattern of behavior which for me, is always the most interesting thing when examining someone who's had a career as long as Theodore McCarrick's is there's usually a very well-established pattern of behavior to sexual abusers, that you see them abuse in the same way and you see the abuse increase over time and you see um, you see a way in which they conduct themselves, the way in which they groom victims, the way in which they abuse victims. There is there's a sort of – it's a sort of outward spiral of, rep of repeating and amplifying behavior and what I've – found very interesting reading the McCarrick report is the kind of what we would call basically casual sexual assault and harassment is very common with Theodore McCarrick. And it's very common in public even that he does this in front of other people. And again, going back to what you were saying earlier about, you know, the discrediting of mother one and this forming a, a sort of inoculation against him. He has this, I think, very deliberate way of sexually harassing someone in front of other people. And in that way, he's kind of vaccinating himself against them because they're now party to the abuse. Back to the question of John Paul II. Um, Cardinal O'Connor from New York wrote a letter reluctantly recommending against the promotion of McCarrick um, on the basis of, of these sorts of rumors um, and, and two instances of, of particular allegations, not just rumors, not just anonymous reports, but two Two specific, I think it's two, allegations, neither of which O'Connor deemed to be credible. But they were there and he was aware of them. And he thought that these cumulatively um, uh, were significant enough to to spike any promotion for McCarrick. It's worth noting, I think, that, that the O'Connor letter is the strongest recommendation against the promotion of McCarrick sort of in the report. Um, but it's also worth pointing out that it, it seemed to me, and Ed, you can say if you agreed with this, reading that letter, because they produced the letter from O'Connor in full, reading that letter, I didn't get the impression at all that he was convinced that McCarrick was guilty. No, um, I didn't get that impression there, there's, there's no bishop who writes to Rome, at least not recorded in the report, that gives the impression or says that they think McCarrick is actually guilty of the things that are rumored about him which is significant, which is that there are bishops who are reporting these things to Rome who don't themselves believe them to be true uh, or are at least not convinced that they're true. I was going to say there's – it's not clear to me from the letter that Cardinal O'Connor thinks he's guilty. But the fact that it's not clear to me from the letter tells me nothing about whether or not Con Cardinal O'Connor actually thought he was guilty or not. And I think this points to a particular facet of Episcopal clerical culture, which is it's not my place to have an opinion on this. In fact, O'Connor even says – I wouldn't recommend him for promotion, but if you were to promote him, even as my successor in New York, I would support that. Yeah. I recommend against it, but if you choose to do it, I'll support that. Um, so this letter becomes sort of uh, 
exhibit A in, in evidence against McCarrick. And again, it's a letter commenting on second and third hand reports and it recommends against his promotion. And that seems to carry the day. The issue of promoting McCarrick to Washington comes up and he's passed over. Um, and then uh, Colonel O'Connor dies. Um, and just a couple months later, the question of promoting McCarrick comes up again. Um, and this is where things get a little strange, if they weren't strange already. I was about to say, where they begin to get a little strange. Where they, where they get strange. Uh, so what happened? Uh, somehow, this very confidential letter from Cardinal O'Connor, uh, word of it gets to McCarrick. How exactly, we don't know. He, in the report, tells whoever interviewed him that one of his sources in the Vatican tipped him off to the letter. Can we just pause for a moment yeah. there? Because... I, and something we didn't discuss at the beginning and maybe we sh- we should have brought up is we talked about who made this report, who ordered the report to be made, who compiled it. And I think one thing we haven't um, addressed is who is this report to? Who is this report aimed at addressing? Whose questions is it satisfying? Um, and we don't know that this is a report addressed to no one fundamentally, which I think is a reason why it doesn't satisfy anyone particularly in its contents, even though, as you said, um, there's a lot here that we – would not have any reasonable expectation of seeing otherwise based on previous Vatican experience. But I think it also, because the report is not answerable to anyone, this is not a report to the people of God. This is not a report to the U.S. bishops. This is not a report to Pope Francis. This is just a report to whomever, you know, to whom it may concern effectively is who this report is addressed to. Um, And as a result, it renders the report, although it can be very forensic in the kind of detail that it gives, it renders it ultimately very, very incurious about motives. And it doesn't ask obvious questions like the one you just read about. Where did McCarrick get a copy of this letter? Well, it just says, McCarrick said his sources. Where might his sources have come from? Well, we know from the report that McCarrick was extremely generous with his money, um, which he had a lot of. He was an incredibly talented fundraiser. And he maintained his own discretionary charitable funds as Archbishop of Newark and later as Archbishop of Washington and even in retirement as the retired Archbishop of Washington. He had his own personal charitable checking account that he could write checks to anyone, brother bishops, charitable foundations, whatever you like. And he had hundreds of thousands of dollars coming through that every year. And the report acknowledges this. And the report acknowledges that amongst the people he would cut checks to were officials in the Roman Curia on the regular. Who they were, we don't know. But the report at least dismisses in its own introduction. We haven't looked at that because there's no real, you know, we evaluated this idea. But in the end, there's no reason to suspect that McCarrick's um, financial gifts to senior church officials would have played any part in, you know, his rise to power or his ability to escape detection as a sexual predator, which I think to any good faith observer is something that you have to meet with incredulity. The idea that someone is spending large amounts of money in personal gifts to the people who would be charged with investigating your suitability for office and that this played no role in them determining that you were suitable for office, I think beggars belief. Well, that goes back to this not being an investigation, right? This right. is this is just a report. This is everything the Vatican knew based on... It's a report without conclusions, except when they want to make a conclusion, like McCarrick's money played no role in his rise. <laughs> right. They're happy to draw that conclusion without evidence. But, you know, again, why is it able to do that? It's because this is a report addressed to no one. And so ultimately, it's not charged with answering any answering questions to any one person's satisfaction. So going back to the, the question of how did McCarrick end up in Washington, he got a hold of the letter from Cardinal O'Connor in New York, wrote a letter, a personal letter to Cardinal Jeevish, who was the uh, – Stanislaw Jeevish was the, the secretary to Pope John Paul II, had been a secretary since his days in Krakow. Um, and wrote a, a letter, which is reproduced in the report, basically protesting his innocence. He said, I understand that there have been rumors about me. I understand that Colonel O'Connor wrote a letter recommending against my promotion. And look, it's it's not upon me to, to beg for promotion, but I want to clear my own name. And, and he addresses rumors about him and he addresses allegations about his past. And he, he again leans into this sort of feigned transparency um, and avows that he um, you know has done things imprudently in the past sharing beds with seminarians kind of thing. Um, he's been imprudent in the past, but he he avows that he's never had sexual relations with any man, woman, or child ever in his entire life, um, and that he's entirely at the disposal of the Holy Father, uh, but he just wanted to let the Holy Father know this to clear his name. Isn't that a weird phrase? 
Which phrase? That when he says how he chooses to defend himself against very specific accusations, which are that he had inappropriate homosexual relationships with effectively adult men. Um, his chosen response is, I've never had sexual relations with anyone, man, woman, or child in my entire life. I find that a very odd kind of reaction. If someone accuses you of something, the normal thing to do is, I would never do that. But to sort of make this blanket statement of basically, I am an asexual person and have been for my entire life, um, strikes me as very weird. Um, I, it doesn't strike me as weird in the sense that that I think the presumption is or ought to be that a man who is a cardinal in the Catholic Church or, or is an archbishop at the time in the Catholic Church who had a vow of celibacy that he's been living by since he was in his early 20s um, has not ever had sex with anybody. Yeah, but it's not all. how I would— I mean, it, it, it strikes me how, as the, the most categorical of categorical sort of uh, denials. I don't know. I It struck me as odd because I would, I would expect a— a bishop or a cardinal or even a priest who has um, a healthy sexuality within their priesthood, within their vocation to remain continent and celibate and everything else, to be able to discuss that um, in a way which is reflective of a life experience. Whereas a blanket, I've never had sexual relations with a man, woman, or child in my entire life is, I don't know, it, it rings inhuman to me. It, what does, the phrase in itself doesn't ring in human to you, but what it does seem to me in light of the rest of the report is canned because it's not, that letter to yeah. Cardinal Jewish isn't the only time that phrase appears. Yeah. He uses that line. And you realize this as you read the report. It's a that stock he has, phrase. He has stock phrases and Spoiler lines that he plate. uses. Yeah. And he used it uh, with his priest council and he used it when he was talking about his, what he told to his priest council when he's telling the other bishops what he told them. And he has put them all together and they come, you can see that these are rehearsed. These are stock lines that they're they're essentially prepared, canned phrases and explanations for his behavior that, that show up again and again. Um, so why does J. John Paul II um, send him to D.C. as the Archbishop of D.C.? The report doesn't really tell us, as you say. It doesn't go into motivation. But what there's, are they there's, No one ever is motivated in yeah. this report. It's one of the most amazing things is all this happens, and it's sort of an entire—it paints a picture of an entire church in the passive voice— Things just happen. You know, people just get promoted. Letters just get lost. You know, it stuff just happens. You know, that I mean that is basically the the ethos behind it. Um and it I think it renders it fundamentally less credible as a result of that, albeit it is clearly a, a level of disclosure, which I think is surprising and unprecedented. So let's talk about uh so Cardinal McCarrick, he's in um DC and he's made a cardinal. John Paul II dies, so Benedict XVI is now the Pope. How does Benedict XVI handle well, just Carrick? To, to, to wrap up the story of how he gets appointed, so, so O'Connor effectively spikes his nomination to Washington. O'Connor dies. McCarrick writes to Rome to protest his innocence. And then just a couple minutes, a couple months after he was officially uh, uh, originally denied Washington, he's appointed again. Uh, how he came to be at the top of the turna again, or if he was on the turna, he wasn't on the turna. Uh, he was on the official list submitted by the I Congress. I think originally he wasn't. He wasn't. No. Yeah. He, he came to be at the top of the list and is appointed. Um, appointed with the recommendation of the Congregation for Bishops. And which why? What just are they months, seeing in McCarrick? Just months earlier had said we recommend against this, and months later they say we recommend it in favor of it. Um, so just as John Paul followed the recommendation of the Congregation for Bishops in rejecting McCarrick. A couple months later, he follows a recommendation again in appointing him. Why that recommendation changed is not entirely clear. In fact, it's not clear at all. The only thing that seems to have changed is there was a uh, there was a change of leadership at the Congreg Congregation for Bishops, and there was this letter that that uh, McCarrick wrote to um, Cardinal Jeevish. Yeah. Those are the only two things in the report that seem to have changed. And Cardinal O'Connor died. Those three things. that And, and in a matter of six months, nine months, Changed it from, you know, you're not going to Washington to you're the next Archbishop of Washington. Well, and I think that's a very interesting point that there was a change of leadership at the Congregation for Bishops. Who became the, was it the new prefect? Was it Cardinal Ray? Yeah, I'd, I'd want to check the exact chronology of that. But I mean, um, I find the exact line of advice and who supported and who was against McCarrick's appointment to be very interesting in all of this. And that's something you don't see a lot of in the report. Um, and these people very much are still alive. I mean, if you, if you were to look for three people in Rome, this is something else that I think we should 
at least mention is that at the time of McCarrick's promotion, JP2 was in decline. He was an unwell man. Um, and it was reliant increasingly on his curia to help him govern and to help him assess things like this. And I think if you were looking for three people who would have his ear and in whom he would repose the most confidence and whose temperature he'd want to take most carefully in the appointment of uh, someone to the capital diocese of a major country like the United States, it would be the prefect for the Congregation of Bishops, it would be the Secretary of State, and it would be his private secretary, Cardinal Jivich. Now, I didn't read a lot in the McCarrick Report, and I haven't done a, a search to sort of come up with a hard number of how many mentioned, but the Secretary of State, Cardinal, Cardinal Angelo Sedano, shows up in this report almost not at all. Correct. A lot less than people were expecting. Yeah. Say. For someone who was effectively the vice pope for much of the tail end of JP2's pontificate, I find it remarkable that he's not interviewed at least not that I can recall, at least not in any substantive way. His correspondence doesn't seem to show up. Um, very little is there at all, which is even more interesting, I find, when you consider that it was his former department that compiled this report. Um, you know, you hear a lot about mistakes that were made at, for example, the Congregation for Bishops, a lot about mistakes that were made by American dioceses. But the department that not so much as exonerated, but just airbrushed out of this whole thing is the department charged with producing this report. And I mean, again, when we talk about an incurious tone of and passive tone of voice that this report is written in, I think this is another one of those questions that is raised is, well, wait a minute, what happened to the third leg of the stool here of the people who would be providing Alterna and providing JP2 with advice on the appointment of McCarrick? Also important for the appointment was the congregation went back to, through the nuncio, to inquire of American bishops who knew McCarrick best what they thought of him because we're really thinking about doing this thing we didn't do but we're thinking about doing it again. And of the four bishops, there were bishops who had been served around McCarrick or with McCarrick in New Jersey and in New York. Um, of the four who responded to those letters, at least three of them gave information that was either incorrect or inaccurate. Incomplete. Or yeah. incomplete, which is to say that they all – several of them mentioned that, yeah, that we've heard rumors. They, none of them sort of wrote and said, you shouldn't do this. Um, and it was on the strength of those recommendations or at least the absence of any objection um, that the appointment was made. And that is a conclusion that the report does draw. It is a conclusion the report does draw. That it was on the strength of those recommendations from the bishops who knew him best – um, and so whatever, however strong, uh, however influential O'Connor's recommendation against it was, the fact is that most of the bishops who wrote, wrote in support of McCarrick's appointment and that, that O'Connor was a, a loud voice, a prophetic voice. We wish he had been, his advice had been followed, but he was a minority voice. Um, and ultimately McCarrick is, is appointed. Um, as you said, John Paul II dies a couple of years later and Benedict XVI becomes Pope. Um, in 2006, I believe, there's, there are further indications from the United States of, of past allegations, more specific. This is around the time that two dioceses in the United States are paying, two or three dioceses are paying settlements um, in cases involving McCarrick and abusive seminarians and young priests. In 2006, McCarrick turns 75. And his resignation is accepted by Pope Benedict XVI. It's recommended to Pope Benedict that given what they know now about McCarrick or, or the, the continuing accumulation of rumors and allegations and settlements now against McCarrick. Which were all handled very quietly. Nobody knew about these settlements. That's correct. That's correct. They were handled very quietly. Now that he's retired, uh, that he be sort of some, some sort of lid be put on him. Um, and here we get to the pontificate of Benedict XVI, which his handling of McCarrick is essentially – you could describe it as just ineffectual. It was basically like lay low. Y yeah. Well, the, there's no formal sanctions put on him. And here we get into the, the territory covered ostensibly by, by Archbishop Vigano in his, in his writing on this. Benedict XVI, it seems, agreed that informal uh, restrictions um, should be put on, on McCarrick. And the idea is, is – that there's no uh, – these aren't formal. There's no there's no bite to them. But basically, lay low, stay out, keep your nose clean, stay out of trouble, and and make yourself scarce. Um, and that, that was never really enforced. 
McCarrick sort of made some gestures and, and kept pushing the envelope as to what would be uh, allowed. And and when he did care to inform his superiors of what he was doing, he was he was always doing more than he was supposed to be doing and sort of take two or three f- feet and maybe they'll ask you to give back an inch. Um, and he he so he he essentially lived in defiance of of these very weak informal sanctions for the entire pontificate of, of Benedict the Sixteenth. Uh, by the time Pope Francis comes around, uh, according to the report, Pope Francis saw no reason to sort of change the status quo, and so things remained that way from 2013 when when Francis came to be Pope until 2017 when an allegation involving abuse of a minor was made. Uh, against McCarrick in New York. And from there on, what happened with McCarrick is much more a matter of public record. And that's where the report ends, is 2017. It ends when any conclusions they might draw would be subject to public scrutiny. Correct. Or fact-checking by other people. Correct. So what's not answered? We t- we've already that we've already covered a lot of things that aren't answered. But what but what else is not What else is not answered um, in the McCarrick report? Uh, in particular, one question I wanted to ask earlier was— um, how did McCarrick become Cardinal McCarrick? Like, what what did he do right to navigate this clerical culture? I think there's no question that McCarrick cultivated um, a public persona which was exactly what people wanted. He was the very modern version of a cardinal that people could want. He was gregarious. He was extremely um, personable. He could work a room incredibly well. He was a magnetic personality. He also appeared to be utterly uninterested in himself. You know, um, I, I I think the report uh, contained a lot of accounts of this, but certainly people I've talked to as well who, who worked closely with McCarrick for a number of years said, you know, you had to argue the guy into buying a new suit. He'd have to have, you know, he'd have holes in his clothes that it was, you know, there was an authenticity to him that when he's going around, for example, asking for money or inviting you to take a trip with him, that he was compelling because you would look at this guy and say, well, this is a, you know, jet setting, powerful, influential figure in the church. But at the same time, in a cheap suit, in a cheap suit that's falling apart, that this guy, he's got to be sincere because he can't, how could a guy who looks like this be in it for anything other than, you know, for not himself? In that sense, I think he did that very, very well. Um, I think a lot of the behaviors that we've talked about are signs of uh, either a pathology or a deep personal depravity, depending on which way you want to go with them. But I think from the point of view of McCarrick's career, I think they served him very, very well. That there seems to have been an ability with him to partition the things he did that were morally wrong with the things that weren't. And that he could, you know, compartmentalize his life very, very well that way. That you know, there are there are a number of accounts that I found fascinating, where uh, he would basically be in the process of sexually assaulting a seminarian or a young priest, and at the same time telling them uh, either during or immediately after, you know, you really have to pray for your uncle Ted. You know, uh, you know, he's really struggling. Interesting that he would always refer to himself in the third person, um, but at the same time, you know, sort of be admitting to his victims that he was troubled by his own actions. Um, and I think this is something that, you know, a way of externalizing what he was doing and the part of him that was doing it, uh, I think allowed him to present a more authentic face, which was conversely even more duplicitous to the rest of the world. Well, in one of the recommendations for the um, – I think for when he was going to become the Bishop of Metuchen or Newark – I can't remember which one, but one of his recommendation letters said he was, quote, made to order. I think that was, you know, very intentional on McCarrick's part. Yeah. So uh, he, we, we talk about an insular clerical culture that allowed this to flourish and didn't do a, a good job, did a very bad job of trying to ferret out the truth with regard to McCarrick, assuming that th- these bishops actually wanted to know. Uh, a, a culture in which powerful men have a, a very, very high of their own estimation of their own ability to judge others' characters is an environment in which someone who is a real master at deceiving other people can flourish, right? So you, in, in a culture in which you have bishops relying on their estimation of of their fellow bishops and talking to their other, you know, bishops interviewing other bishops about what they think of their fellow bishops, and that's supposed to be an investigation. Um, Someone like McCarrick, who is really, really adept at ingratiating himself to people, 
uh, can go a long way. It's a it's almost a tailor made environment for someone like McCarrick, um, and he was he was very good at this. You know, what some of the earliest re- red flags, and they didn't even show up as, as significant red flags at the time, but from his very earliest promotion to being made bishop and then made the first bishop, bishop of Metuchen, there was never any hint in the archives about any sexual impropriety or moral impropriety. But there was the flag that this was an ambitious man, that he was very ambitious. Um, and those who, who mentioned this said that shouldn't keep him from being promoted, but he's really ambitious. This is a guy who wants to climb the ecclesiastical ladder. And he knew how to do that. He knew, I, was, I think we've mentioned this already, he knew that he's looking in in the 80s and 90s, if you want to stand out, get a lot of vocations. And he did that in Metuchen. Um, and, and everywhere he went, he was he was known as a, a guy who, who was really good at recruiting men to the priesthood. And if you wanted to stand out, sort of visible, almost ostentatious uh, statements of fidelity to Rome, grow vocations, fundraise well, get involved in in important social work of the church, his work with Catholic charities, and a lot of good work that he did and that he was involved with. Do those things and you can you can go far. Uh, he figured out the formula and he really, really dedicated himself to doing that. I mean, time and again in the report, you see evidence of other bishops acknowledging how hardworking he was, how tireless he was. Um, he was tailor-made, right? Made to order to be a high-ranking prelate. And and he went out of his way and dedicated himself to doing the things that were going to get him promoted. And it worked. Now, the flip side of that is, um, in retrospect, what we're describing as, as a, a man who made himself sort of overwhelmingly appealing for promotion uh, stands out as a... a a sycophant, you know, someone who like I'm gonna I'm gonna grow vocations so that I can get promoted. I'm gonna go raise money for charities so that I can be given greater responsibilities within the church. And and the 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 people who should have seen that, who should have recognized the warning signs, missed it. And is the has the church changed any? I mean, are we are there more McCarrick's coming down the pipeline? Are we better at spotting these guys? I don't think so. Maybe we're getting better at spotting them, but I don't think, at least in the church in the United States, we have not yet seen any evidence that the bishops are committed to holding each other to account morally. I think the fallout of the McCarrick scandal has been a lot of very good um, Roman reforms in terms of procedure. Uh, Vos Estes Lux Mundi, for example, which was Pope Francis's new sort of mechanism for uh, holding uh, investigations and uh, looking into bishops who are accused of failing to deal with issues of abuse, even if it's not that they themselves have committed. Um, I think that's all been great, and we've seen that those those processes are being used and, and have teeth. But what we've yet to see is any noticeable moral outrage amongst the bishops at the conduct of their brother bishops. Um, you know, I, I watched, I presume, the same live feed of the USCCB that everyone else did this year because they couldn't meet in person, you know, the week after the McCarrick report came out. And I saw some concern. Um, I saw in one or two occasions, um, I think it was Archbishop Laurie in particular, talking about the need for the bishops to, to adopt um, a sort of ongoing ritual life of private prayer and penance for the church, which I thought was very affecting. But in general, I... I saw them defiant in some cases. There were some bishops who said, you know, well, it would be wrong to dwell on the McCarrick Report as, you know, signs of a problem in the church. And really, it, it would be almost disloyal to Pope Francis to be, for us to be outraged about this because this is all fixed now. And I don't think it is. And I don't think it will be until you get to the point where the bishops make the world an uncomfortable place for each other when there are clear moral failures. You know, we were talking about one of the most sort of eye-catching parts of the report being these two bishops who saw McCarrick sexually assaulting a priest in a banqueting hall. If if a bishop in the United States today, if Bishop A, you know, your your I you know, your cookie cutter bishop from a diocese somewhere, whatever that looks like to you, if he saw another bishop, you know, putting his hand on the thigh of a young priest at a at a fancy black tie dinner, do we think he'd run to the nuncio the next day today? I don't know that he would. I, I don't have that kind of confidence. I think I think that Ed is right that a, a significant change in the culture, the, the 
clerical culture, especially at a high level, meaning at the level of bishops, um, for that to change to the degree it needs to change will require more discomfort applied to bishops by other bishops. I, I agree with that. But I, but I do think that things have changed um, in part because of discomfort for bishops from outside the clerical caste. Um, I think that the baseline assumptions about how to handle these matters, um, and by these matters I mean clerical sexual misconduct, the baseline assumptions are changing. They're not changing as quickly as they ought to. They're changing slowly, but they do change. And I think you can even see that within the report. There is a point in the report where the conversations about unproven, uh, sometimes anonymous allegations and rumors the, the, the way that the people in the report talk about those issues, whether it's from Rome or American bishops, the tenor of their conversations about those matters changes. And it's right around 2002. And I don't think that the bishops had a sudden change of heart about these matters. But I think that the public scandal of 2002, at the very least, made even cynical bishops take more notice of these things. And I think that that's that's the beginning of a change. You have structural changes that are put in place that are only effective insofar as the lagging clerical culture catches up to the, the institutional reforms, right? So you had the, the Dallas Charter for, for its strengths and weaknesses makes significant changes. And the, the cultural shift, which is in a sense more important, follows that. It lags behind it. It's not as far as it needs to be, but it is moving in the right direction. The days of their being able to look the other way comfortably – uh, without pushback, without feeling the heat all around them from within and without of the church, that's changed. Now, it's not where it needs to be, but I think the baseline assumption and the ability for bishops to sort of um, do the minimum that they are required by law, perhaps, in regard to these matters, those days are over. They just can't do that without feeling the heat from from within the church, but also from from outside the church. And um, you know, I I would much prefer that apostolic zeal and and you know, desire for the salvation of souls would convert all of the bishops to become saints immediately, and this issue would go away, and that we would have good and holy men guiding us in every decision they make. Um, but sometimes the church re- is reformed through kicking and screaming, and I think I think you see some of both. But I think uh, like this is a problem that took decades, decades and decades to get. To where it was um, at its at its height, not just with the, in the in the case of McCarrick, but in the abuse crisis in the United States as a whole in the '60s and it was peaking in the '70s and beginning to decline thereafter. It took decades to get that way. Um, it's taking decades to change that, to reform it, and to get out. Of it. But I do think that that the the church's handling of this is moving in the right direction. I don't know if that's satisfying to anybody, and I, I kind of hope it's not satisfying to anybody. But I think. To be fair, it is moving in the right direction. And and just to think that we would go from Theodore McCarrick uh, being a cardinal of the church to being laicized, to having vocestes, to having this report in just a matter of two and a half years is is remarkable in itself. I, I would agree that's, with that. That's, that's astonishingly I, fast change in ecclesiastical terms. I know we've been waiting for this report for a long time, but that's, that's lightning quick when it comes to Roman terms. Uh, and the key word there is Roman terms. And what I haven't seen is a cultural change amongst the U.S. bishops, at least not yet. That, yeah, has Rome come a long way in a, you know, comparably short, short, short period of time? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think a lot of what has made it so necessary that Rome has done this has been they are attempting to impose and drive the kind of behavioral change that wouldn't be necessary if a good clerical culture existed amongst the U.S. hierarchy, which I think in many places there still doesn't. You know, you said the the real cultural heat got turned up on the bishops after 2002 and that that wasn't coincidental, that that was the result of things that were happening from outside, the sort of spotlight revelations and all that. I would agree. But when the Dallas Charter was being created and brought in by the U.S. bishops, among those given a very respectful and solemn hearing was Theodore McCarrick, was Bernard Law. Now, fast forward to 2018, 2019, who's at the microphone but Cardinal Whirl? And who is 
that we see at the installation of Wilton Gregory as Worrell's successor, who was McCarrick's successor in Washington, D.C., Cardinal Roger Mahoney, that, you know, the, the temptation to never, ever, ever make life socially awkward for a brother bishop, no matter how egregious it is that they are still present and out front, I think is still the, if not the overriding factor, then at least a hugely determinative factor in how bishops relate to each other. That in the end, bishops don't turn on bishops, that they are brothers first. And I think that is something that we have yet to see change, that the we we often see, and I've been to a fair number of USCCP meetings now, um, they're very good at stressing collegiality. They're very good um, at stressing that they are brothers and need to think and act and work together. They're very, very bad um, at being their brother's keeper. It's not a job they want to assume. And I think that's why we've seen a lot of these radical reforms coming out of Rome that you've mentioned. You know, we wouldn't need vos estes if it hadn't been made blindingly obvious that it was necessary, that the existing structures weren't enough to compel action. So in conclusion, I'll just give each one of you a chance to just tell your final thoughts on the McCarrick Report. So, Ed, any final thoughts? Yeah, I, I think the McCarrick Report is, as, as we've mentioned, uh, an unprecedented level of disclosure from the Holy See in terms of what it knew and when it knew it about Theodore McCarrick at an institutional level. I think what the church has not demonstrated with the McCarrick Report is an ability to apply the willingness to be free and frank with that information to any kind of accountability. And I think that's that's sad and it's a missed opportunity. Um, I hope that it will get better at it. I hope, first of all, that we won't need a second McCarrick report for a second McCarrick. But I hope if we get there or somewhere like that following a subsequent scandal, that this will be something that is looked back on and say, okay, we had a we were willing to make a level of disclosure there that was unprecedented, and that was good. But now we need to apply what we're willing to disclose to answering some kind of questions, and most importantly, to whom are we answering them? Because ultimately, we can talk about things like bishops being answerable to each other, bishops being answerable to Rome, bishops being answerable to the faithful. But in the end, the church is answerable to God. And I think this is something that was lacking from the McCarrick Report, was an idea that the church has failed at an institutional level in its responsibility to the to itself, in its nature, as something founded by Christ. And I think it would be nice if in the future we could see a better reckoning with that. Stephen? You know, I think the takeaway from the McCarrick Report is is that there, ha there are signs of progress. It's slow. It's a multi-generational change. Um, and what we need is, is vigilance and dedication. Um, uh, I said earlier that, that one thing lay people can do to help change things is to sort of keep the heat on their priests and bishops. Uh, so even the ones who are reluctant to change will still change. Um, and we need to keep doing that. Um, we have to do it in a way that doesn't violate the ecclesial integrity of the church. Um, we need our shepherds as much as, as, as they need us. Uh, but vigilance and, and remaining informed and involved on the part of laity is, is critical. And how's the Catholic Project going to help do that? Um, well, the Catholic Project does that in a, in a lot of ways. Thank you for asking. Uh, one is helping to keep lay people informed through uh, work like this podcast. Um, we have a, a certificate program to help train people up to be prepared to uh, – it's a certificate available online, a certificate in child protection and safe environments that people can take through Catholic University to, to help leaders – um, ensure that the environments in which they work or for which they're responsible are, are safe for children. Um, we are hosting and funding uh, research uh, to help prevent sexual abuse, to help bring about healing within the church and, and healing for those who've been directly affected by sexual abuse, to better understand uh, the factors that go, go into the, the crisis like we've experienced it, the culture of clericalism, organizational structures, um, Lots of different ways. So uh, you can check out more about the Catholic Project at catholicproject.org. Thecatholicproject.org. Thecatholicproject.org. And Ed, how is Catholic News Agency helping to make the church a better place? Um, we are certainly continuing our mission to report the truth about the church, um, report it fairly and with love, um, with fidelity to the church and its teaching, but with a very clear eye to the truth that really, you know, when— when Christ said that um, 
you know, everything done in the dark will be brought to the light, that this is something that we can have confidence in and that the truth, the church has nothing to fear from the truth. And I think this is something that, uh, it's a, it's something that Catholic media has a unique role to play uh, in the church in not being driven by the agenda of either trying to serve personality within the hierarchy, but at the same time, not attempting to subvert the institution of the church, but to really think and say and believe that we have nothing to fear from the truth, that this is the beginning of, of justice and mercy. Uh, in the church. From the Catholic Project at the Catholic University of America, you're listening to Crisis. Our podcast team includes myself, Carnal Lozoya, executive producer Stephen White, producer Jeff Gosser, and communications manager and writer Sarah Perla. Sound designed by Paul Veitkus. Music, courtesy of Jay Tibbetts and APM Music. Our theme song was composed by Gautam Shrikishan. Marketing and distribution provided by Jeff Umbro of the Podglomerate. Cover art by Tom Grillo. And a special thanks to Karen Michelle and all of our guests. For an episode guide or for more information about The Catholic Project, go to thecatholicproject.org. If you've been sexually assaulted, you can receive confidential support 24-7 through the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-HOPE. That's 1-800-656-4673. If the abuse is related to the Catholic Church, you can also contact your diocese's Victim Assistance Coordinator. Contact information for each diocese is available at usccb.org forward slash VAC.